Hello and welcome to a Karakatsu podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Matthew Wirth and we'll be discussing the topic of neurodevelopmental disorders. If you would like to learn how to help patients who are suffering from neurodevelopmental disorders, please visit karakatsu.com. Hello and welcome to a Karakatsu podcast. My name is Dr. Freddy Garcia and today we are lucky to have Dr. Matthew Wirth uh, Dr. Worth is recognized as an expert in helping patients who suffer from neurodevelopmental disorders, so I'm very excited to have him on the show. Uh, Dr. Worth is a diplomate and fellow in functional neurology. Um, he's also a has fellowship recognition from the American College of Functional Neurology in electrodiagnostic specialties, vestibular rehabilitation, and childhood developmental disorders. Uh, Dr. Worth, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you on the show because this is, this is something we haven't really talked too much about on the on our podcast, and uh, to have you on one of the the best in the world in this topic is excited. I'm excited to learn. So thank you very much. Glad to be here. Okay, awesome. So hey, do you mind if we uh, get right into it? I mean, I have so many questions that I want to ask you, and I know you're very busy with busy guy because you have multiple practices. I'm going to let you get back to it, but uh, let's jump right in. Is that okay? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. All right. Awesome. So first of all, I mean, a lot of, well, I mean, I think a lot of people come on the show and they're going to listen to you and they're going to go, well, hold on. What is even a, what is a neurodevelopmental disorder? Uh, it seems like it's such a simple question, but I think a lot of people don't really know. Uh, what, what are, what are we really dealing with? What are they? You know, a neurodevelopmental disorder is either going to be a genetic or acquired biological disability and the function of the brain itself. They're usually categorized, at least I categorize them in four major categories, and I'll give you some examples as we go through. But Mm -hmm. the first category I look at is cognitive dysfunction. So, I mean, this would include kids with dyslexia. This would include um, Asperger's. This would go ahead and include uh, cerebral palsy, mental retardation, or any type of learning or language disorder. The second category I look at is behavioral dysfunction, and this one's going to go ahead and include things like conduct disorders, emotional disorders, anxiety disorders, um, obsessive compulsive disorders, oppositional defiant disorders, or even PDD, which is really a pervasive developmental disorder that affects socialization and communication. We see this oftentimes with the broad spectrum autistic disorders, and now it's been classified as Asperger's. The third category I look at is typically motor or motility dysfunction. And the first part of that that I look at is going to be the perceptual component. And that's going to be taking in the information sensory-wise in the posterior aspect of the brain, organizing it, interpreting it, and then basically contributing it or firing off into the motor systems. Some other areas of motor dysfunction that we look at are patients that have cerebral palsy, MS, ALS, any types of poverty of movement or hyperkinetic, hypokinetic disorders, including tremors. And really the last category I look at is seizures, which is really pretty well defined, you know, depending on the type. So those are the four categories that I look at when we look at neurodevelopmental disorders. Got it. All right. So you have like a little categorization system that you kind of filter your patients through. They seem to fit in one of the four. All right. Excellent. So since you are an expert in neurodevelopmental disorders, I'm sure you get lots of different types of patients. What are the types of patients that come see you? You know, we have patients that are kids that come to see me with sensory modulation disorders, inattention, focus, um, emotional ups and down, pandas, pans, um, anxiety and emotional difficulties, gait abnormalities, perseverations, obsessive compulsive 
Tourette's, um, a lot of TBI patients come in that have very similar activities in brain with inattention as a consequence of concussion, um, mild to moderate traumatic brain injuries, non-traumatic brain injuries like strokes and things of that nature as well. You know, that's fascinating that you say that because I've worked with a lot of uh, traumatic brain injury patients and you do see this element of, uh, of, a, of a neurodevelopmental disorder type of presentation when they have these types of injuries. Like I've always seen like a, almost like it's not direct on, but almost like from an angle, you can kind of see this perspective. And what, why do you think that is? Well, when we disrupt the brain's normal activity, and let's just use concussion as an example, most mm -hmm. patients with concussions, even if it's mild, will go ahead and say that they've developed memory issues, attention issues, focus issues, difficulty sleeping, um, difficult, difficulty with word acquisition, a lot of the post-concussive-like symptoms that we that we hear, vestibular disorders, balance disorders, and really those areas are are housed in the frontal lobe of the brain. So, a lot of the things that we look at with children, again, are oftentimes frontal lobe of the brain um, oriented as well. Hmm. So let me ask you an another question. So, what if somebody has a, a neurodevelopmental disorder and then has a brain injury? Do you do you find that they have like layers to their condition? Can, can you kind of solve them all at once? How do you? Because I mean, right? We all like to think that there's only one thing wrong with the patient, and that's you know that single factor thinking. We're trained by Dr. Carrick to step away from it. How do you work with somebody if they have they had that before, then they have a traumatic brain injury on top of it, or some sort of multi other multifactorial condition? Does that complicate things? Does it make it more difficult? You know, the outcomes for people who have layered issues, and they all have layered issues. So let me right. give you an example. So if we look at something just like attention deficit disorder, let's look at that, okay? And we can go mm -hmm. ahead and correspond that with maybe brain injury as well. So both populations have problems with focus and attention oftentimes, okay? The areas of brain that are involved in those types of things include the basoganglionic areas and the caudate areas. And if we consider those as maybe like a neighborhood, okay? So we know that certain things like ADD very rarely live in isolation. They oftentimes have sensory components. They have motor components. They have emotional components. So up in our basoganglionic areas, in our caudate nucleus, we have things like um, a house there, if you will, that does OCD, Tourette's or movement stereotypies, bipolar type symptoms, um, schizophrenic, schizotypical disorders. So while they're all in that neighborhood there, we don't necessarily have to play with everyone in the neighborhood, but we may have little pieces of it to where somebody who has a fragile brain or a brain injury may start to go ahead and perseverate on things that they didn't before. Or kids who have um, ADHD, they can focus on the things they want, but they can't tune out the things that they need to focus on. All of them seem to have emotional components that go along with it as well. And if we look at frontal lobe of the brain, your frontal lobe really, through basic ganglionic loops, dampens down the more primitive areas of the brain. When we have damage or when we have neurodevelopmental disorders or delays, we start to see that more primitive areas of the brain becomes more active and we can't put those things in the background anymore. It becomes more forefront activity and as a consequence interferes with activities of daily living. Hmm. Okay, cool. Well, uh, here, let me ask you this other question here. I got so many questions, I can, my head's spinning, I want to learn all this stuff. 
let's say somebody walks in. What are the, what are the top three clues that you're going to be looking for to see if your patient has a neurodevelopmental disorder? And, and the reason I ask this is because until you're trained to look for this stuff, I'm assuming that a lot of our trained clinicians out there, or those who haven't studied with this yet, have somebody in front of them has a neurodevelopmental disorder but aren't aware of it. So what are the things that we're kind of looking for? In my practice, the main things that I look for when I'm looking at a patient, if I suspect a neurodevelopmental disorder or an acquired developmental disorder, you know, due to a consequence of a, a brain injury, I always look at motor system. Motor system it lends to a whole boatload of information for us as far as how well it's functioning. The other thing I look at is if there's an emotional component, I always look at the brain-gut axis and we'll go ahead and do laboratory testing to evaluate that because if we just look at the motor system or the neurological exam and we're not looking at other things that could be causing you know, inflammatory markers within the brain and causing more spontaneous depolarization and other issues, we're only looking at a piece. And the last thing I like to do is I like to look at standardized testing or neuropsychological testing. And if I suspect that there's a learning disability, I want to do a cognitive test. I want to go ahead and do, whether it be <clears throat> a standard IQ test, or we may look at if it's an academic issue where somebody has problems learning, we could be looking at achievement tests. And there's a boatload of different achievement tests out there and IQ tests out there. But I would tell you that these tests are really important for us to go ahead and quantify. While we go through programs and we say, yes, I see this, yes, I see that, I think the acceptance of us as trained clinicians is that we can quantify it objectively, not tear apart a test and say this is for this part of the brain or that part of the brain, but actually look at a test and say this patient has difficulty processing letter phenomes. So that may be your dyslexic patient right there. So that gives us a better idea on what's going on, how well it works, and then we have something we can measure from that baseline that we did and see if our therapies are actually beneficial. Super. Hey, can I, so can I probe a little deeper on the testing you do? So for motor testing, um, I know what I would look at in motor testing. So I'm assuming, well, I mean, can you share with us? What do you, what do, you do for your motor exam if you can give us a little glimpse into it? You know, motor testing is going to be very similar to any neurological motor testing that we see. I mean, I'm going to be looking at things like muscle spindle responses. I'm looking at strength. I'm looking any, for any types of spontaneous movement, whether it be in the face or in the distal extremities. I'm looking for um, any types of pronator drift and things of that nature, things that you're trained in in the Carrick Institute. They do a really good job on, on discussing those things. Um, as far as the brain and gut axis, I mean, again, that's really largely lab work. And then basically we look to see if we have any reactivity. We also want to go ahead and look at how do we address that. So there may be dietary modifications that are made as well as supplementation depending on what we see. And then as far as the standardized testing that, we, that I do here, um, oftentimes, again, there's a bunch of different ones. And is one better than the other? I'm not certain. But I would also look, if I'm looking at a child and I'm suspecting that there's learning disabilities, I would always do an achievement test and I would always do a cognitive or IQ test. Again, there is no one that's particularly a favorite, but I would tell you that with the uh, achievement test, the Weschler, um, I know some people like the Wyatt, but the Weschler has a form A and a form B. 
The reason I use that one is because if I give them the same test within a 12 month, six or six month, I'm sorry, if I give them the same test within a three month, six month period of time, it's not really a valid test because they've seen it before. Mm. So in order to be a valid test that would be recognized by anybody else in the field of neuropsychology, we want at least 12 months. However, if we use the Weschler, we can go ahead and do a form A and test the same type of activity on a form B without it being the same test, and then it is valid. So I'm a big proponent of using that or if they have a form A and form B so that we can make sure that we're not giving them something they've seen before because it will skew the results and it will actually make you look like you're either helping them maybe more than you are. Hey, with that test, I'm going to write that down. What test was that? The one with the form A and form B? Can you spell that out for me? The Weschler, W-E-S-C-H-L-E-R, achievement test. Okay, got it. Super. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing that. Hey, so I'm going to, I'm going to change the topic here. One thing that I've always heard a lot about when it comes to uh, developmental disorders, especially in children, is uh, the concept of a primitive reflex. Uh, what are they and, and why do we care about them? Primitive reflexes are basically actions that originate in the nervous system and they're exhibited normally by infants, but as we develop, basically, they're not present in adulthood. Um, oftentimes, what we're doing is we're looking at frontal lobe integrity. Once we myelinate, typically these reflexes should be gone. However, we know that in non infant populations, so maybe the adult population, we start to see some of these reflexes return. So sometimes we'll see them in Parkinson's, TBI, strokes, dementias, and other neurodegenerative disorders. We just call them frontal release signs. So basically we're assessing the frontal lobe and the integrity of that. In children, we look to see, have we gone ahead and developed that part of the brain where it's gone? Because a lot of them had to do with survivability and walking and balance and all those types of things. So they're good windows into frontal lobe activity. And you should probably, in especially dealing with children, be aware of when these things appear, because we know some of them appear at birth. Some of them would, would go ahead and abate by nine months. Others appear in utero and abate at three to four years of age. And some of them, again, should be gone by, by 12 months. Got it. So let's say we find them in a, you know, a young child that also has some other, you know, maybe behavior issues or anxiety or um, any of the conditions that you mentioned earlier. Um, I, I previously saw that there was remediation of these primitive reflexes, but I've been around Dr. Carrick a, a long time, and he has a different approach to these things. Um, he kind of typically goes to higher centers in the brain and rehabilitates that to see how that affects the primitive reflexes. What's your approach to that? You know, again, I think that you need to be aware that they exist. I think that if you're dealing with a child, you should be able to at least see if those things are still there. But overall, I'm not really certain. In my practice, I've trained or I've worked with some um, professional athletes that were told that they had primitive reflexes. I have a real hard time when I'm dealing with somebody who's a professional athlete who basically didn't crawl and they see residual components of uh primitive reflex and they're having this professional athlete crawl on the floor so that he can go ahead and hopefully retrain these things. I, I think that I would probably take more of the Dr. Carrick approach. Let's increase the integrity of the brain and those things should abate because sometimes I think we see what we want to see 
Um, so I would tell you that I'm not a big fan of the remediation of them. I'm not telling you it's a waste of time. I just think that increasing brain function should remediate those if they're truly there. Right. I mean, I, and I mirror your approach. I mean, that's what I was taught by Dr. Carrick. And that was just kind of like from observing him work with, I mean, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of patients at this point. But I, I think it takes a different skill set to be able to look at somebody and say, hey, this is exactly what I needed to raise the function of this patient's brain as opposed to going to the lowest common denominator. I mean, I think sometimes that may be appropriate, but uh, with a, with a, with a well-trained eye and a different educational knowledge base, you can kind of have a more, I guess, a modern approach like Dr. Carrick does and get a, hopefully a better result like he does. Absolutely. You know, I think that what happens is that if you're a well-trained functional neurologist and you're taking these programs, I mean, that will lend to your expertise on knowing what to do. Um, I mean, I sometimes see, you know, people advertising on the Internet who have very little training, even massage therapists trying to remediate these reflexes and things. So I, I think that there's a, a better way to do it. And I, I like to look a little bit uh, more deeply into things than to go ahead and think that we need to go ahead and work on something that patient, you know, shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Now, if they had brain injury, we may see some of these reflexes come back. But typically, if they're coming back, we have other issues that are far more pressing than trying to remediate a reflex. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you. Hey, I'm going to switch topics on you again here because I think this kind of reminds me of um, where does all this stuff kind of fall into the hemispheristity model? Um, for, I mean, I well, guess you would do, well, let me ask you, I mean, can you kind of define for us the hemispheristity model? I, I know we, we use it very, very early on in the Carrick Institute program as an educational aid, just a model to understand a very complex topic, but we quickly leave it behind. Um, but I still hear a lot about it in the, you know, childhood developmental disorders arena. Um, can you describe to me what the hemispheristity model is first? So when I first started the Carrick program, basically we talked about hemisphericity on what side of the brain is maybe not functioning as well as it did. And you know, while hemispheristic model back then I think served us well for over a decade, it's really not the current accepted model that we see in the literature today. And that's why we don't teach it really anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, for example, I don't think anybody would argue the fact that language centers largely reside on the left side of the brain. However, the right side has significant language processing strength from prosodics to paralinguistics to reception and interpretation to comprehension as well as lexile and um, post-lexile visual word recognition. Um, the current theories really move away from hemispheresy and they move more towards networks. And whether we're starting to look at autistic kids and we look at hubs and long-range neurons as opposed to short-range neurons and who and do they have more or less of which ones, I think that we're really now focusing largely on networks in, uh, in neuroscience and how those networks work. I mean, one thing that would support that would be the use of functional MRI and tractography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things we do in the curriculum or caricatures is we start talking about uh, connectonomics, right? Just like you said, the neural networks. And I think the hemispherosity model is kind of used as a, a learning aid, but we quickly leave it behind and start teaching uh, these networks and how, like I love the example you just said, how language, you, you would love to unilateralize or to have a unilateral lateralization of it 
to like one side and be like, oh, that's all it lives. But realistically, when you look at it, it's much more complex than that. But if you if you study it well, it, even though it's complex, it can be easy to work with. You just need the education. Well, and I think, again, if we look at networks, let's just take something, for example, like ADHD. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at one point in time, we said that largely attention has to do with that right um, side of the brain, largely in the frontal lobe, and that second gyrus is largely where we start to see a lot of the attention. However, if we start looking in the literature, we start looking at different types of networks. So attention is really controlled by a posterior attentional network and an anterior one. The posterior one is going to orientate you and engage novel stimuli. It's largely norepinephrine as far as the uh, as far as the neurotransmitter, and it transmits the information to the anterior system that really subserves the executive function and really drives on dopamine. So, if we start looking at some of the drugs that are used to go ahead and help kids with ADHD, they're typically dopaminergic or or norepinephrine-based drugs that will help those kids do it. So if I break it down even just a little bit more, if you have time, the mm-hmm. posterior attentional systems, basically, they're going to include that superior um, parietal cortex, the superior colliculus, which you know everything seems to drive into, the pulvinar nucleus, and basically it receives a lot of the norepinephrine from the locus ceruleus in our pain system. And what the norepinephrine typically does is it inhibits the signal-to-noise ratio so that basically you can go ahead and decrease the activity of the surrounding neurons so that you can focus attention more on the thing, on that novel stimulus to engage it. So, for example, if I have a norepinephrine deficiency or I have an uptake issue, okay, we start to get an increase in the signal-to-noise ratio, and as a result of that, we don't tune things out as well, and we have problems attending to what is seen or what we're supposed to be focusing on. Now, once those systems, basically those posterior systems, I told you before that they really drive the anterior systems now, which we said are going to be largely executive network, and it's going to use dopamine. And this is really going to consist largely of that prefrontal cortex and your anterior cingulate, If we have deficits in these areas here, we start to see deficits in the characteristics of executive function, reasoning, um, there's some memory components to it, um, word acquisition and things of that nature, reasoning through those types of things. So when we start looking at networks, we now start to be able to say, well, we have problems with this network and we can really be a little bit more specific now on how we direct our care as opposed to going ahead and saying, let's just do the shotgun approach, and hopefully something will happen. God, man, Dr. Worth, that was beautiful. I, like, nerded out while you were saying that. I, I'm going to have to listen to that section of, that was like a small lecture. I want to listen to that again. That was great. <laughs> oh, that's why you're the best. Very cool. Um, hey, let's, let's switch it up again. So, listen, I know you have a very, uh, you have two very um, successful practices. So you have tons of uh, patients that come see you with, uh, you know, these neurodevelopment disorders. Um, what, let's start talking about your approach to helping these types of patients. What does it entail? How do you uh, put together the recipe, I guess, to help them? Well, I mean, the first thing I do when somebody comes in, I mean, they've provided me a, an extensive history, but I'll do a full neurological workup, much like the ones that I train you all or that you all get trained in with the neuro uh, program with Dr. Carrick. We also want to go ahead and look at 
multi-layers. So we want to go ahead and also look at things like laboratory work because we know right now, again, that the gut brain and the microbiome there plays a huge role in anxiety, emotional control, and behavior. Not necessarily as much attention, for example, as we thought, but we know it plays a huge role in behavior. And if you look at the literature out there, and this is the psychiatry literature, this is not even chiropractic literature, but psychiatry literature really supports the testing of this in autistic kids, any neurodevelopmental disorder, sensory modulation disorders, as well as ADD and ADHD disorders. So another thing that I look at is I wanna do neuropsychological testing with the patient. So if somebody's had a brain injury, we absolutely, that should be a key part of this as well to find out where they're functioning at. If it's a kid that has a learning disability or a behavior disorder, <clears throat> we wanna know, do they have that 22 point spread in language between their cognitive read our language scores and their achievement language scores to see if they would maybe even be possibly eligible to get special consideration at school and assistance for that because we want the best outcome for our patients. And then we also, in our brain injury patients, we are establishing a baseline to where they should be compared to their peers. Standardized testing is really important if we want to go ahead and measure outcomes and say that this therapy or this intervention was successful or not. Um, and the last thing we, I want to do basically is look at the results and then develop a plan specific to this. So a lot of times we see that there are kids out there, for example, who have dyslexia and have people doing interactive metronome and all these other things, but they're really not addressing the issue of how we treat dyslexia. What is the thing? Is there a reading program maybe that that kid would benefit from so that he can be more successful in school? So you really have to look at, when we look at neurodevelopmental disorders, we look at not only the things that you do in your office, but you look at the things, if it's a child, that can be done at school to help ensure his success and at home as well. That's awesome. So, I mean, one of the things that I've always kind of been uh, or been a, made aware of is uh, sometimes people have a canned approach to these neurodevelopmental disorders. And it makes me, I mean, this is why you're one of the best in the world, is your individualized approach, right? And I mean, it's... Um, I mean, you just have to put that specific recipe together for that patient. If it was as simple as to kind of do a canned approach and have it work all the time, then, uh, then solving these patients' uh, conditions would be easy, wouldn't it? But, it, but it's not so, 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 uh, so easy. So I think the individualized, you know, individual recipe for the patient is one of the most beautiful things you could do for them to really help them out. Absolutely. I mean, and if we look at even some of, and I was listening to some podcasts not so long ago, with Dr. Traster. You know, if somebody has a vestibular disorder and you say, well, let's go ahead and rotate them in both directions, you may actually be causing that person a greater problem than they had when they came in. So the individualized approach to this is very similar. We want to make sure that we're doing what's best for the patient. You know, giving patients things to do so that they don't do other things like play on video games or whatever is not really the answer. The answer is really let's give them specific things to do to see the best outcome possible. All right. Hey, could I ask you a little bit of a business question in regards to how you set up your your practice? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I recognize the importance of having a trained clinician um, look at these patients. How do you, and I know you're, I, I feel lucky that we were able to pull you away for an hour to do this podcast. 
how do you um, set up your practice so you could see all your patients and make sure everything's happening the way you want it to? Well, in, in all honesty, I, I'm a true believer that if you're going to assess a patient, you have to have the training to do it. Unfortunately, I can't get my staff to assess an eye movement on somebody because they don't have the training. I can't get them to go ahead and basically assess a motor system or a sensory system. I can't even have my staff go ahead and render a neuropsychological test because they don't have the training to do it. There are certifications required for those types of things because you can interpret anything you want from those things. So what I've done is I go ahead and I do the neurological exam. I've hired somebody who's trained to go ahead and do the neuropsychological testing and that's all she does. She does it for the school district, she has her own private practice and she does it for me. My staff can draw blood because that's what they're trained to do as well. But this really allows me to look at the patient, devise a program, and I meet with the neuropsychologist and we discuss what we see there so that we can look at the neuro exam and see how it correlates with a psychological profile and then come up with the best program for that patient. Awesome. So you really put together the team that is specialized for every single aspect of your exam and treatment approach. I do. And while I don't think that that's not or that's absolutely necessary if you don't have a large enough practice to do, but I will tell you that you definitely need somebody who's qualified or certified to do the neuropsych testing because, again, those people have the experience to recognize stuff that the numbers aren't there because they've had experience in doing this for tens of years. So I would tell you that if you really want the best outcome, Standardized testing is one of the key things that I look at as far as the psychological profile and whether it be academic or IQ and stuff as well, but see how it correlates with the things that I find during the examination. Awesome. Hey, I'm going to ask you another business question here. Um, in your practice, I know you have a, a, lot of, a lot of different tools on the rehabilitation side of things, um, and you're even consultants for, for some of these companies that are developing this very high-tech uh, tools uh, and technology to help patients. What are some of the things that you have in your practice that uh, maybe um, somebody doesn't even know that they may want or need? Do you mind sharing that with us? No, absolutely. Awesome. You know, I mean, I have the sacodometer. I have the VNGs. Um, I'm really impressed with this new thing called the neuromotor, or Neurosensory Motor Integrator by, R by RKB Instruments. Um, it gives a lot of, uh, of different types of things that we can measure on there. It um, maps it out as far as the scores from day to day so you could see progress. You can pretty much customize it to do almost anything that you want. And uh, there are continued, excuse me, modules that are being uh, created at all times. So I really like the NSI unit. Um, as far as the balance, we have a balance unit here. Ours is a Biodex unit for our computerized dynamic posturography. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty much tools of the trade. The newest tool that I, I have probably right now is the NSI, and I have a couple of them because we see enough patients to where, again, we have about 16 or 17 different modules on that that range from anything from visual to spatial processing to, I mean, optokinetic stimulation. And it's full field because it's a, a 50, 60, or 55 to 60-inch TV that basically uh, encompasses the entire you know, area for the patient. So there's a lot of things that are being geared towards uh, neurodevelopmental disorders in that program. Yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, put in my two cents for the NSI unit. We also use it at Plasticity Brain Centers, and I, I do love using it. It's a 
for those who haven't seen it, it's like a big TV um, with a touchscreen panel on top of it. So essentially, uh, the software lets you do assessment and treatment. Um, imagine like a giant iPad, but it, it gives you the full field and just gives you uh, assessment and treatment capability that isn't found on a, a simple device like an iPad. So I, I like the NSI unit as well. So, and yeah, don't you do some consulting for them? I do. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been working with them for about a year and uh, developing some of the programs that are uh, that are being used in your office down at Plasticity along with the, uh, you know, across the country right now. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for doing that because as the tool gets better and, it, and they do keep doing amazing software upgrades of it, uh, we appreciate it and use it. And I know we've had uh, amazing results with it and... Uh, yeah, geez, comes to, one that comes to mind is a stroke patient that was uh, uh, had just such amazing success with it that is, uh, it's one of those things that just sticks out of my mind, right? So I, I love the device. So very cool. Thanks for contributing uh, in regards to that. Um, hey, Dr. Worth, uh, do you mind yes, if I, I'm going to spill the beans on what we caught coming up for 2018 for you and the care kids? Is, is that okay? Absolutely. All right, awesome. So everybody our, our, uh, to our listeners out there I want to let you guys know that uh, we are very excited to be announcing the neurodevelopmental disorders program with uh, Dr. Worth in 2018 we're going to be releasing the dates soon and this program is being completely updated and overhauled from what we previously had with that older education um, Dr. Worth who we now consider to be the best in the world in this area really working in the trenches and helping these types of patients uh, has been quietly working on this for several years now actually and we're finally ready to release this giant update so uh, Dr. Worth we're just so pumped at the Care Institute to have you finally release this on everybody because we're going to be able to help so many more patients once our doctors get updated and uh, educated with this new model that and, and paradigm that you're putting together when it comes to neurodevelopmental disorder so thank you very much we're, we are beyond excited for it well i couldn't be more excited about it you know it's about time that uh we we're moving away from just the childhood developmental disorders but we're encompassing not only those childhood issues but also the ones that affect adults as well so i think that it's going to be a more comprehensive program that will go ahead and at least be able to be applied to practice every day right and i think one of the things that it's going to be exciting about what you're also doing is we're going to let in some of the business and, and practice aspects so you can integrate this. So there's going to be different levels of uh, from the solo practitioner all the way to the, you know, the larger practice like you have. And, and people are going to be able to take this education and immediately integrate it in one way or another into their practice to immediately start helping patients. Absolutely. All right. This is so this is, uh, you know, exciting news. I'm very excited about that. Dr. Worth. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and sharing uh, your expertise in this area. This is something that I personally have always wanted to learn more about. So this was, I felt lucky to be interviewing you and learning from you. I'm going to be attending your program in 2018. I promise you that because this is something that I need to brush up on so I could help more patients as well. Um, and Dr. Worth, I know you get a lot of referrals from from uh, doctors all around the United States and world who, who maybe need a little help in helping some of their patients. If somebody wanted to find you, where did they find you? How did they connect with you? Uh, you can go to my website at mo, M-O, like Missouri, brain and spine spelled out, dot com. Or you can go to my other website, which is M-I, the number four, N-D, so it looks like mind with the number four in the middle, dot com. You can reach me through either one of those websites, or you can reach me at um, my office, Missouri Brain and Spine, at 636-778-4300.
Excellent. All right, Dr. Worth, you, you really are the man. We're, again, we're super excited about the Neurodevelopmental Disorders Program uh, launched in 2018 uh, with you and the Care Institute. It's going to be a, a powerful and amazing collaboration, and uh, I'm just excited about how many patients we're going to be able to, to help through this, you know, this new or updated modern approach. So, again, thank you for your contribution to that and all your hard work. I know you've been chipping, out, uh, chipping away at this for, so for several years, and for it to culminate in this beautiful piece of education that, that you've uh, worked hard to put together is beyond exciting. And uh, we can't wait to let everybody know even more details about that very, very soon. So thank you for coming on the show. And uh, Dr. Worth, we may have to do it again, man. You, I mean, as you shared some, some beauties in there, I want to learn more. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to uh, working with each and every one of you in 2018. All right. Excellent. Catch you next time, Dr. Worth. Bye-bye. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on caricinstitute.com.